under King David, there were 38,000 men that were set aside to serve in some capacity in a priestly or ministerial function. 38,000 set aside. Within that 38,000, they selected 4,000 of those men and set them apart for the express purpose of the musical side of worship. Leading the congregation of Israel in praise and in worship from a musical perspective. Out of those 4,288 men were selected that had a unique vocal ability to lead in worship. Many were instrumentalists, but, but these 288 had been uniquely gifted by God to lead vocally in worship. Out of the 288 that were selected out of the 4,000 that were selected out of the 38,000, there were three that were selected to lead those 288 that were broken up into 24 different choruses or worship teams. Out of the three, there was one who was selected to be the chief leader of sacred worship from a musical perspective. 38,000 to 4,000, 4,000 to 288, 288 to 3, 3 to 1. This one was extremely gifted by God musically. But he also had an unbelievable heart for God in worship. It wasn't just that he was talented. He had a passionate heart for God that theologians say about him impacted his family for centuries. This one was a singer of all singers selected to lead. He was a songwriter. He was a musician. He's the one who was selected to always lead and worship whenever the Ark of the Covenant was present. When the Ark of the Covenant was present, there was only one who led in worship. It was this one. His name was Asaph. Of all the songs that Asaph wrote, 12 of them 
are recorded for us in the book of Psalms. If you're reading through the Psalms along with us this week, you'll notice at the beginning of several of the Psalms, it said a Psalm of Asaph. Why would I take the time to tell you all of that about Asaph? Because this morning, I want to read for you a psalm. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open to the 73rd Psalm. And here's what I want you to understand as you read it. These are not the ramblings of a non-believer. These are not even the ramblings of a Christian who's not walking with God. When we read the 73rd Psalm, you need to understand the kind of man Asaph was. Out of 38,000, they selected 4,000. Out of 4,000, they selected 288. Out of 288, they selected three. Out of three, they selected one, and only one had the ability, the gifting of God, and the heart for God that every time they brought the Ark of the Covenant out, the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God among His people, there was only one man with the character and integrity and the godliness that they said, when it's that time, He leads. Psalm 73 Asaph gets real honest. What we're going to do this morning is a little bit different approach. Out of these psalms every weekend, I have been pulling a verse or two or three out of a psalm. This weekend, we're going to look at all 28 verses in Psalm 73. Now, some of you immediately went into panic mode because you thought, Dear Lord, sometimes he preaches almost 50 minutes and he only does one or two verses, 28. Some of you already have your iPhone out and you're doing the math. You're extrapolating how long we're going to be here. But just bear with me. We're going to get through it. You have the great advantage of the buffer of another service coming behind you. All I can tell you is pray for the 630 service tonight. (laughs) Psalm 73. We're going to read a little, talk a little, read a little, talk a little. Is that all right? That's all right. Say amen. Amen. If it's not, we're going to do it anyway. But just, just wanted you with me. Surely God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. You hear what Asaph is saying here? This is one of the godliest men 
in the nation of Israel. And he says, but as for me, I almost slipped. Verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant. Let me, let me tell you what he does here in these next few verses. Asaph begins to be envious of the way the world lives. Here's this man of God. The word envious here is a word that means to be zealous of what somebody else has. Here's this example of godly character. And Asaph says, I started looking out at the world. And man, I sure wanted what they have. Look at it. As I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The word prosperity here is a Hebrew word. If you know any Hebrew word, you probably know this word prosperity. It's the Hebrew word shalom. Have you ever heard that Hebrew word? Let me see your hand, right? A lot of people know that Hebrew word, shalom. It's, it means peace. It's a word that, that's used among Jewish speaker, Hebrew speaking peoples, Jewish people, as a greeting where we might say, hey, how you doing? They would walk up to one another and say, shalom. It's, it's their way of saying, how are you? And, and, and the implication is that I'm at peace. I'm fine. Look what he says. Asaph says, for I was envious of the arrogant. I started wanting what they want because... They're always doing fine. I see the prosperity. They're at peace. Everything in their life looks good. Verse 4. For there are no pains in their death. It doesn't even hurt when they die. Their body is fat. It's a word that in Hebrew means healthy. Hear what he's saying here? They don't even get sick. God, here I am. 38,000, 4,000, 4,000, 288, 288, 3331. And I'm looking out at them, and they're always doing good. They never get sick when they die, it doesn't even hurt. We're not ever here, are, are we? But you don't ever. Verse 5. They're not in trouble as other men. The word trouble means the general difficulties and hardships of life. He says they don't, they don't go through anything. Then he says, nor are they plagued like mankind. The word plagued is a word that, that its most basic meaning means physical contact. Here's what he says. They go all day long. Nothing even touches them. God, they're not even touched. Verse 6, Therefore, 
pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. <laughs> this word fatness is a different word than the one in verse 4. This is a word that, 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 that means the best cut of the meat. It's like in the Old Testament sacrificial system when it said they would bring the, the fat portions of the meat. It's not the part that you cut off and leave aside. It means the best. Here's what he's saying. God, I'm sitting here looking out at the world. They never get sick. Nothing ever touches them. They're always at peace. They're always doing good. And they get the best of everything. They get the best job. They get the best promotion. They get the best house. They get the best cars. God, they get the best of everything. I know what some of us are thinking. How did God write down in the Bible what's been in my heart? <laughs> their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. Verse 8, they mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouth against the heavens. Their tongue parades through the earth. God, it's not just that all this is going so good for them. They're arrogant about it. Verse 10, therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the most high? They're taunting us. We don't believe in God. Look how good we got it. Then he says, behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. Always at ease. You hear how in these first 12 verses he's becoming envious of the way the world lives. Then in verse 13 he begins to shift and, and he's not just envious of the way the world lives. Listen to what he starts doing. He starts regretting the way he's living. Look at verse 13. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. He's looking out at the world. And he sees all this prosperity and all this good things and all the what he would consider blessing. And they don't get sick, doesn't even hurt when they die. Everything's always going good for them. And God, here I am. You've said every time you bring out the ark, God, I'm the one that leads in worship. Here I am, God, keeping myself pure when others are out there living it up however they want to with lust of the flesh, the eye, and the boastful pride of life. They have no regard for you, God. I'm, I'm trying to live pure. God, I'm trying to be holy. Lord, I'm trying to lead my family to love you. God, we're sacrificing and we're giving and investing in your kingdom. Lord, we're sending our kids overseas. God, we're doing all this. And it's like, God, we're doing it all in vain. The word vain means useless or waste. God, everybody else is getting ahead and it's like we're going backwards. It's all in vain. God, I'm wasting my time living this Christian life. Look what he says next. Verse 14, for I have been stricken 
all day long. Here's what's interesting. That's the same word that's used in verse 5 and translated plague. Remember what I told you it meant physical contact? Here's what he's saying. Look what he says. I'm stricken all day. The, the wicked, nothing touches them. I'm getting beat to death every day. God, all day, it's like every time I turn this way, pop, right in the face. I turn this way, pop, right in the face. I turn this way, oh, right in the gut. I turn this way, man, they're knocking me on this. Everywhere I turn, God. Verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed generation of your children. Then he moves into another area here in verse 16. He's not only envious of the way the world lives and he's regretting the way he's living. Now he begins to struggle with how God's even at work in the world. Look at verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome. In my sight. Here's what he's saying. Lord, I've been thinking about this. I've been watching God. Lord, I've been observing the way the world's getting ahead. God, I've been watching their portfolio go up, mine go down. I've been watching they get the promotion and I don't. I've been watching all the fun that they're having and all the sacrifice and hardship in my life. God, God, I've been keeping a little score here. and Here's what he says. It's, It's troublesome. The word troublesome is a word that means to labor to exhaustion. Here's what he says. God, I'm just wore out with it all. Can anybody in the building identify with Asaph? Don't sit here and look at me spiritual. If we're going to get honest today, we've all lived in the first 16 verses of Psalm 7. Listen, it's a godly man. Take off your I'm at church face, get honest. You may not have had the guts like Asaph to write it down and sign your name to it. But you thought it. Asaph is pouring out his heart. Remember last weekend we talked about God being a refuge? And we said when God is a refuge, we can trust Him at all times. But trusting Him at all times doesn't mean we can't be honest with Him about all things. You know what Asaph's doing right here? He's dumping out his toy box. He's just laying it out there before God. And then we 
get to verse 17. Look at verse 17. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Listen. I thank God for Asaph. And listen. I thank God that in his sovereignty, he put this in the book. I don't know about you, but it is good for me to know that godly people, I don't have to think so bad about myself, right? Godly people wrestle. Asaph said, This is where I was until I came into the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary in the Old Testament was that place that symbolized among the people of Israel the presence of God. The sanctuary for a while was mobile with the tabernacle. It moved around with the children of Israel as they wandered around the desert. But then when they got to the promised land, they built a temple. And the sanctuary moved into a permanent location there in the temple. And the sanctuary was symbolic of the presence of God. Here's what Asaph is saying. Everything changed when I came into the presence of God. Of God. James said it this way draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Asaph was experiencing what James would write centuries later. Asaph was drawing near to God and God in His sovereignty and in His holiness and in the majesty and the grace of His presence was drawing near to Asaph. We desperately need the presence of God On a daily basis. Can can I say that one more time? I want you to get that. Godly man. Worn out. We, We... Desperately need the presence of God on a daily basis. You see where he was living until. The problem is there's too long a periods between our until. 
we wind up living in the first 16 verses for days or weeks or sometimes months. We need the presence of God on a daily basis. Listen to what my, my mentor Clyde Cranford, he, he said it this way, my mentor, look what he said. We cannot deny that there is a thirst which can be quenched by no other drink than the pure, sweet presence of God. When I am daily pursuing God's presence, changes everything. I have written down in the margin of my Bible here above verse 17 this statement. The presence of God not only changes my life, it changes my perspective towards life. presence of God not only changes my life, it changes my perspective towards life. Look, look, look. I'm, I'm pastor here at Hope. There's days I'm living in the first 16 verses. Lord, you've gifted me as a leader. Lord, you've gifted me as a communicator. Lord, why couldn't I take that and go be CEO of some company somewhere and make millions of dollars and then, Lord, I could invest so much in the kingdom of God. I'm just being honest with you. I have that thought sometimes. Lord, I could have so much bigger of a platform. I could enjoy all these things, God. Until. Until I get into the presence of God. And he reminds me of what he's called me to. And nothing on earth is as precious as the presence of God. Asaph had his perspective changed in several areas. And I want to just read it through the rest of the text and show you how his perspective changed. First of all. The presence of God changed the way he saw the world. Look at these verses, verses 18 through 20. He says, after I came into the presence of God, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terror. Like a dream when, a, when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. I mean, this crowd where just a minute ago, he's wanting in. I want what they got. And now all of a sudden his perspective has changed. Let me give you a couple of ways that his perspective towards the world changed. Here's what he understood first of all. Number one, sin will be judged. Sin will be judged. In the presence of God, Asaph is overwhelmed by the holiness of God and the reality that ultimately God will judge sin. 
Listen to the words he used to describe what's ultimately going to happen to the wicked, to the ungodly. He says they'll be cast down. It's the idea of a city that has been overthrown and devastated. They'll be destroyed, he said. It's the idea of ruined and wasted. Everything that they've built will be decimated. Then he said they'll be swept away. It means their, their, their existence will be brought to an end. Asaph is looking at the world in a moment and he's so envious of the pleasures that they're enjoying and the fulfillment and satisfaction of trying to let the flesh just go wallow around in that for a while. And then all of a sudden he comes into the presence of God and he's overwhelmed by the holiness of God and he begins to realize that all sin will be judged. Asaph is writing with the same heartbeat that the writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament writes with. Listen to these words, and they're heavy. Listen to what he said. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Look at this last phrase. It is a terrifying thing. To fall into the hands of a living God. That's not seeker church kind of stuff there, is it? But it's in the book. The writer of Hebrews becomes overwhelmed by the judgment of God. And he said, it's a terrifying thing. To fall into the hands of a living God. Here's what what A.W. Tozer said about it. I want you to look at this quote. This is so powerful. He said, The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of creation are inseparably united. God's wrath is His utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. He hates iniquity, which is another word for sin. As a mother hates the polio that takes the life of her child. Asaph gets into the presence of God and he's overwhelmed by the holiness of God and the fact that God's holiness will judge sin. Now, what does that mean for us? Here's what it means. Listen, listen, listen. Don't miss this. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is the good news that Jesus took all of the wrath of God against sin on himself. On the cross, God emptied out his wrath against sin. On the cross, Jesus embraced all of the judgment of God for your sin and for my sin. And when Jesus died, he paid the penalty for our sin as he rose again from the dead. It's a testimony that God accepted his sacrifice for our sin. And the gospel says that in Christ, all my sin has been judged. But listen, Hebrews said, if you trample underfoot 
the Son of God and His sacrifice. And if you insult the Spirit of the grace of God by refusing God's atonement in Christ, here's what Hebrews said. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Asaph began to see the world as headed towards the judgment of God. When you see the destination where the train is headed, it's not as enticing to get on board. Second thing Asaph realizes this This world's not all there is. Look what he said, verse 20, like a dream. You know what a dream is. You you dream and you dream and you think it's real, right? You ever woke up in a dream and thought, what's going on? Because you thought it was real. Here's what Asaph said. This world, although it's real, it's not the real real. The real real is yet to come. This world's like a dream. We're going to wake up one day and it's going to be over. It may look like it's fun now, but but when you wake up. Quickly before I leave this one, let me give you a couple of words of application. Number one, if you're a Christian today, listen. Listen, here's what this teaches us. We should be broken over the lostness of our world, not envying the way they live. We should be broken. That they are headed towards the judgment of God. Not envying the trinkets in their lives. Today, if you're not a Christian, listen to me. Embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Today is the day of salvation. You don't have to experience the judgment of God. In His grace, He's made a provision. As Asaph moved into the presence of God, it it changed the way he saw the world. But secondly, the presence of God changed the way he saw himself. Look at verse 21. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and arrogant. I was like a beast. before. Hear what he says here? God is like I was dumb as an ox. Just like a beast. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, (laughs) receive me into glory. It changed the way he saw himself. Let Let me tell you some things he understood about himself. Number one, here's what he understood. My heart will lie to me. When he got in the presence of God, he realized my heart will lie to me. My heart was telling me they got it made. My heart was telling me that's what I need. My heart was telling me they don't have any problem. My heart was telling me they don't even get hit. My heart was telling me they're always at ease. He said, man, let me tell you what I realized. When I got in the presence of God, I realized my heart will lie to me. He said my heart was embittered in verse 21. The word embittered is a word that means to be sour or to be ruined. It's It's the picture of a piece of fruit that's become rotten on the inside. 
When I was in college, I had a friend that was a health nut. He was a, one of those, he was a bodybuilder that actually performed in the shows and stuff, you know, where they were those little bitty garments and they're out there showing, you know, he got muscles that God didn't give me. I didn't come with some of those parts that he has. And there would be times when he was training for a show where he would just go on this crazy diet and a part of his diet was, was all kinds of fruit. And there came a, came a time in our, our, our college life where we began to smell something unusual in our apartment. Now, now if you have been a college student and lived in an apartment, you know that's not totally uncommon, but this was unusually uncommon smell. Like not the kind you can explain away kind of smell. So we start tearing the apartment apart trying to find this dead carcass that is laying somewhere in our apartment. Well, after... Searching for hours, we, we can't find the thing. And I open the refrigerator, and at the bottom is that little drawer. You know, we can put stuff in it. And I open that drawer, and there's a cantaloupe there in the bottom in that drawer. And on the outside, it looked like a good cantaloupe. And I reached in, and I grabbed that cantaloupe with my hand. Yeah. And when I did, I heard this... That cantaloupe lied to me. (laughs) It promised me something on the outside that was not true on the inside. To this day, I don't like being in the same room with a piece of cantaloupe. (laughs) Here's what Asaph said. My heart lied. When you start envying the world, Is your heart lying? It's telling you something that is not true. In my Bible, I have this written down. The flesh is so deceitful. And do you hear how there's no pain in death? They don't even hurt when they die. Well, of course that's not true. But he'd wrapped his heart around it. Because his heart lied to him. Second thing he noticed about himself is not only my heart will lie to me, but my father has me. <laughs> Here's what he said Yeah, it may look good out there, but my father, he got me. I, I can wait on him. My, my father's got me. Look at the three phrases that he uses. He says, first of all, he said, I am continually with you. Talking about the presence of God. Then he said, you've taken hold of my right hand. That's his protection. And I love that. He says, don't miss this. You have taken hold of my right hand. It's a, the, the Hebrew here is the means to, to seize, to grab. It's not like in a moment of trouble, I reached up to grab his hand. You hear what he said? You got me. You reached out and you grabbed. Listen, if, if me and my little, when my kids were little, if we're, we're walking down the street and I'm holding, if they're holding my hand and, and they decide to take off out into the street, if they're holding my hand, they're in trouble. But listen, if I'm holding their hand, that's a game changer, right? They can try to do whatever they want. But if I'm holding their hand, listen, Asaph says, God, I realize you got me. You got my hand. You reached out. You grabbed. It doesn't matter what's going on out there. You got me. Then he said, with your counsel, you'll guide me. That's his guidance. 
Got it there in verse 24. With your counsel, you'll guide me. You'll, you'll lead me in the right direction. My heart will lie to me, but here's what I know. My father's got me. It's going to be all right. I didn't get that promotion. That's all right. My father's got me. I got that diagnosis from the doctor. That's all right. My father's got me. That relationship didn't turn out the way I thought it would. Hey, that's all right. My father's got me. Third thing he knew about himself. My future in glory awaits me. You hear what he said? And afterward, <laughs> receive me to glory. The word receive means to be brought in. Charles Spurgeon said this. What is around us just now is of small consequence compared to afterward. That's why Paul said it this way in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Don't miss this. He didn't say the glory that's going to be revealed is a little better. He said it's like comparing an apple to a house. It just doesn't even compare. Then last thing, verse 25. The presence of God changed the way he saw his God. Changed the way he saw the world. Changed the way he saw himself. It changed the way he saw his God. Look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? What a difference 10 verses make, right? Oh, I've lived in vain until I can. Oh, whom have I in heaven but you? Listen to what he said. And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. That's a far cry from being envious of the way the world lives, right? I don't need nothing if I got you. What changed that? Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, <laughs> the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your Here's, here's the two realities about God he realized. Number one, God is enough. I need nothing else. We talked about it last week. I'm not going to unpack it again. If you weren't here, go back and watch it. God's enough. He's enough. Church, listen. He's enough. Doesn't matter what you're facing. He's enough. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. He's enough. Look, look what, look what Clyde said. Look at it. Look at it on the screen. We need God. If we don't have him, we have nothing. If we have him, we have everything. That's exactly what Asaph said. God's enough. Here's the second thing you learn. God is good. Not only God's enough, I need nothing else. Don't miss this. God is good. I want nothing else. He's not just all I need. Asa said, he's all I want because he's good. The nearness of God's my good. It's good. It's not plan B. 
It's good. It means it's best. What made the difference? The presence of God. So here's my questions in closing. Do you daily carve out time to be in the presence of God? How long is it between your until moments? Listen, if you're trying to go Sunday to Sunday until, forget it. Wondering, why do I spend so much time living in the first 16 verse? Why am I struggling? Why am I... Presence of God. No shortcut. No substitute. Presence of God. Do you daily carve out time to be in the presence of God? And then secondly, are you intentional about walking by faith in His presence moment by moment? Presence of God is not just your quiet time in the morning. Presence of God is how you live your life. An awareness of God's awareness of you 24-7. He is continually with me. You know what that means? You can go to work in the presence of God. You can go to Walmart in the presence of God. You can go to the golf course in the presence of God. You can live in the presence of God. And if you do, it'll change the way you live. 